1: W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Two outstanding new PBS documentaries airing on W.A.B.E. TV this month bring new perspectives to familiar subjects. Later this hour, the Emmy Award-winning director Stanley Nelson We'll talk about the making of Harriet Tubman, Visions of Freedom, and Becoming Frederick Douglass
0: first. People say.
1: The name Smokey Robinson is synonymous with Motown. In fact, he's known as the King of Motown. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee was the match that lit the flame for Barry Gordy to create Motown records. Throughout his career, Smokey Robinson has written over a thousand songs, many of which were top 40 hits. Among his long list of honors, he was awarded the National Medal of the Arts. He is a Kennedy Center honoree, holds a BET Lifetime Achievement Award, and Honorary Doctorate of Music degrees from Howard University and the Berkeley College of Music. Smokey Robinson will be in Atlanta. He's performing at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center Friday evening, October 7th. And before he hits the stage, he joins me now via telephone. Mr. Robinson, it is a tremendous honor and thrill for me to welcome you to City Lights.
0: Well, Lois, thank you very much. I'm, I'm I'm honored to be here, and thank you for doing this.
1: Would you please tell us the story of how you got the nickname Smokey?
0: Oh, gosh. Well, that goes way back to when I was about three or four years old. I, I was a cowboy fanatic. I loved cowboys at that age, and uh, especially the ones who sang, like, Gene Archer and Roy Rogers and those guys like that who played the guitar and sang, and I loved them. And my uncle, my, I had an uncle, Uncle Claude, He's he's gone now. But uh, he was he he used to take me to see cowboy movies and he would always take me to see, you know, Gene Archer and Roy Rogers because he knew I loved the cowboys who sang. So he developed a cowboy name for me, which was Smokey Joe. <laughs> so at that age, whenever anybody asked me what my name was, I told Smoky Smokey Joe, that's my name. So everybody's called me Smokey Joe since I was three or four years old. With the exception when I got to be about twelve, they dropped the Joe off, and I've been smoky. So that's how I got that name.
1: And now it belongs to the world. In August of 1957, you met the famous songwriter and producer Barry Gordy. How would you describe that audition experience with your band, the Matadors?
0: Oh, it was it was, it was was an experience for sure, you know, because when we went there, we went to audition for Jackie Wilson. Jackie Wilson was my number one singing idol as a kid growing up, and he was also from Detroit. So his managers were in Detroit talent scouting, and we got word of it, and we went to audition for them. And at that time, we had a girl in our group, Claudette, who was my ex-wife. We had a girl, she was in the group with us. And so we auditioned for them, and rather than singing – songs that were currently popular by any other artist at that time. We sang five songs that I had written, and we thought that that would be a good end where they would say, well, these kids got their own material, so we will definitely record them. We were so wrong. They rejected us. They said they couldn't use us because we were like the platters. There was a group called the platters at that time. And they were the number one group in the world, and and they had Zola Taylor, who was a girl in the group, and Tony was a high singer like me, you know. So they told us, they said, you'll never make it, because we already got the platters, and we don't need another platters, so you will never make it. However, at that audition, Barry Gordy was there, and I thought he was waiting to audition, because I was about 17, and he looked like he was no more than maybe 20. And so he he was there, and I thought he was waiting to audition he was there to turn in some new songs to Jackie Wilson because at that point he had written all of his songs for Jackie Wilson, and I had all of Jackie Wilson's records, so I knew who wrote the songs. So he was there, and um, uh, after they rejected us, he came out and talked to me and wanted to know where we got the songs from, and he liked a couple of my songs, and we struck up a conversation. Then he, he, you know, he, he started to manage the miracles and me, and about a year and a half later, uh, he started Motown.
1: When did the Matadors become the Miracles?
0: We became the Miracles after we had recorded our first record. Our first record was an answer record. There was a group called The Silhouettes, and they had a record all called Get a Job. So I wrote a song called Got a Job.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so
0: so we, w- we went into the studio and recorded it, and we had to pick a name because the Matadors didn't work because we had a girl in our group. So we all put a name in a hat and shook it up. And I put The Miracles in there, and somehow or other, that came out. And so we put the names in the hat and picked the name out of the hat, and it was The Miracles. So that's how we became The Miracles.
1: Oh, it's so much better a name, too. No killing animals. You know, it's just got a much (laughs) better vibe. All right. Bob Dylan has called you America's greatest living poet. And from everything I've read— inspiration seemed almost immediate to you. You could write a song very fast. And am I correct, your first hit, Shop Around, was written in 20 minutes?
0: Yeah, it was written in about 20 minutes. I was actually writing it for another artist. Uh, we had an artist named Barrett Strong, and he, we had a hit record on him called Money, That's What I Want. You know, the song, The Best Things in Life are Free. A, so... Barry wanted me to do an album on him And I figured, well, you got money, so what do you do with it? You shop <laughs> so, so I wrote Shop Around in about 20, 20, 30 minutes And I was very excited about it I showed it to Barry And he said he wanted me to sing it So he convinced me to sing it rather than rather than Barry Thank God oh. It was the first million selling at Motown And our first number one record When I became of age My mother called me to her side She said, son, you're growing up now Pretty soon you'll take a ride." And she said, just because you become a young man now, There's still some things that you don't understand now, Before you ask some girl for a hand now. Keep your freedom for as long as you can now. My mama told me, you better shop around mama. Oh yeah, you better
1: uh, shop around uh, What did Barry Gordy add to Your creative process. I'm curious about advice he gave you about songwriting.
0: Barry Gordy was my songwriting mentor. You know, when I first met Barry, I had a bunch of, I had a hundred songs in a loose-leaf notebook that I've been writing since elementary school. And that that day that I met him at that audition, he took me to a room on the side, and he wanted to hear some more of my material. I must have sang 15 or 20 songs for Barry at that time, Mm. and he never once said, Okay, man, that's enough. I'm tired. And he just critiqued all of them. I could always, from the time I was four and five years old, I would write little poems because I could always rhyme stuff. My songs were all rhymed up, but I would have two or three songs in the contents of one song. And he, he showed me that. He said, because, you know, your first verse has nothing to do with your second verse, and your second verse has nothing to do with your bridge, and a song has got to be like a short book or a short movie or a short story that has a beginning and a middle and an ending that tie in together and give people material that so they get one idea to work with. So he, he, he was my songwriting mentor.
1: If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights' speaking with Smokey Robinson about his upcoming show at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. Now, you were essential to the creation of Motown Records. Why did you urge Barry Gordy to start his own recording company?
0: You know what, honey? That's some erroneous information. I've heard that a lot of times. I did not encourage him to start Motown. That was his baby. He wanted to start Motown because nobody, all the record companies he was putting us with at that time, were not paying us. So he got tired of that. So he borrowed $800 from his family, and he started Motown. I, after a while, because we were just local, we were in Detroit, Flint, and Ann Arbor, just in Michigan, and we would distribute records there, and and the records would be hits, and then he would have to go and put them with other record companies who were set up for international and national distribution. So that was happening. So nobody was really paying us. Those companies weren't paying us. So he decided to start his own record company. Now, after we had been in business for about maybe – a year or so, I convinced him to go national. Ah. I told him we were getting ready to put out a record on Miracles of Me, and I said, hey, man, we might as well go national with this, because nobody's paying, and we might as well take a chance ourselves nationally. And so that's what I convinced him to do.
1: Okay, so that's what has gotten lost in translation from some of what's come down to us.
0: Um, Absolutely, and I know that.
1: Motown was revolutionary in its role as a platform for black musicians and how they were received by the rest of the world. You were the vice president of Motown from 1961 to 1988. What did that mean for you as an artist?
0: You know what, honey? Uh, I was the building on the very first day of Motown. So when I became a vice president, when he when, when he announced in 1963 that at a meeting, at a company meeting, that I was going to be vice president, it wasn't anything new to me. Because when we first started, there were only five people there, honey. It was Barry, his then wife, Ray Noma, a lady named Janie Bradford, Brian Holland of Holland Doja Holland fame, and me. So we did everything. We packaged up the records. We sent them out. We took them to the radio stations. We did everything. So by me getting a title, it didn't change my stuff that I was doing, you know, it just gave me a title at that point. But then, officially, my office became the office for inducting new talent.
1: Ah, so you provided a role as a producer and scout in addition to your creative work and your performance.
0: Yes. Okay.
1: Motown was created during a high point of the civil rights era. And its music was meant to be inclusive for all Americans, so much of what makes it beautiful. In what ways do you think Motown advanced the civil rights movement?
0: Because, Louis, we gave people a common love. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King came to Motown before he recorded the I Have a Dream speech. Which was on Motown because he wanted to be on Motown. Because he came and he said, "You guys are doing with music what I'm trying to do legally and in all other ways. I'm trying to bring people together, and you guys are doing it with music. Because we were, we were, especially when we first started going to the south. You know, the, the audience would be separated. there would be white people on one side, black people on the other side, or white people on one side and black people or vice versa, and all that. And they weren't even looking at each other, basically. You know." And uh, so after they got in love, after they fell in love with the music, we would go back a year or so later, and we would see white boys with black girlfriends, and black boys with white girlfriends, and all the kids were dancing together, and they had a common love. Hmm. Motown gave people a common love. On the very first day of Motown, Laws, Barry sat the five people down, with the four of us who were there with him, and he said, we are not going to just make black music. We're going to make music for everybody. We're going to make music for the world. We're going to make music that everybody can enjoy. And we're always going to have great beats and great stories. Mm. And that's what we set out to do. And thank God we accomplished it.
1: Oh, you did. You have written songs for everyone from Marvin Gaye to The Temptations to Mary Wells, to name just a few was it ever challenging for you to write for someone else's voice?
0: No, 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 honey. I loved it because they were my brothers and sisters. I mean, we were growing up there together in, at Motown, and Motown was a family. I mean, the people said, well, the Motown family, they thought it was mythical, but it wasn't because we were not just stablemates, just people at a record company who knew each other. We hung out with each other on a daily basis. We went to each other's homes. We had picnics. We went to the movies. We went to dinner. We went... We went everywhere together. So they were my brothers and sisters, and I knew them well. So when I wrote a song, when you hear one of my songs about one of those Motown artists, the first time, I have written that song specifically for that artist. My girl. Yeah, my girl. Specifically for David Ruffin's voice, because... I knew that he was in that group. And prior to that time, I'd been using Eddie Kendrick to sing all the basic lead voices oh, for yes. them because he had a high voice. But I knew David Ruffins and Paul Williams were in that group, and they had great voices. So I wrote my girl for David Ruffins' voice. I've got
1: never had any problem, any, well, it doesn't sound like you were capable of resentment, but you were never impatient about the songs of yours that other performers recorded or performed in public versus songs you wrote for yourself or yourself and the miracles to
0: perform. No, honey, as a songwriter, my, my goal is to write songs that everyone will sing. Okay. When, they, when the young hip-hop artists and the young rappers first started coming out and they were sampling everybody's music, everybody couldn't really say, hey, man, aren't you mad you're sampling your music? No. Sample all of mine, please. Please sample all of mine because that says that even though you're a songwriter yourself and there are millions and millions of songs in the world, you loved one of mine enough to include it in your in your work. Mm. And you love it that much. So that's flattering to me as a songwriter. That's my goal as a songwriter. I want to write songs that people will sing forever. Everybody. I want to be like Beethoven. You know, we're still playing Beethoven's music. You know what I'm saying? In fact, yeah. I listen to it. Uh, in my car, I have a station called KUSC. Yes, And it says nothing but classical music. And sometimes I get in the mood, I only want to hear classical music. I've been listening to classical music for a week now, straight, without hearing anything else. And I love Beethoven's work and Rachmaninoff and Chopin and, 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 and all those people like that, Brahms. and See, so I want to be like that. Those, those composers composed those songs hundreds of years ago, and people are still hearing them.
1: I am convinced they would have welcomed you. And you know what you're saying is what Duke Ellington believed. There's only two kinds of music, good and everything else. Good and bad. Yeah, good and all the other stuff. Oh, absolutely okay anybody tuning in just now who doesn't recognize your speaking voice might think you are half of your age at 82 it doesn't I
0: am lost <laughs> <laughs>
1: It, it doesn't sound like you are slowing down any time soon. I don't plan on it. Well, good, because you've got yeah. two new albums in the works and a yes. biopic coming out. How many great yeah. artists? I mean, Beethoven, Mozart, they didn't get to write their biopics. Do you know who will play your role?
0: No, we haven't gotten that far any.
1: Okay. Well, I had the privilege to see Ain't Too Proud on Broadway. I must say, you were portrayed very well in that.
0: Oh, well, thank you very we, much. Well, The Temptations are my brothers, and, you know, Otis is my brother-brother. You know, he's oh, the only original one left, yes. and I'm very happy for him that that play is so successful.
1: Yes. Now, I have to tell you, thanks for all you've added to the world through your music. And on a personal note, Smokey Robinson, thank you for providing the joyous soundtrack of my youth, which has remained with me for many decades.
0: Thank you, Louis. Love you. Thank you so much. Love you
1: back, and I will cherish that. Robinson, legendary singer, songwriter, record producer, and co-founder of Motown Records. Robinson performs at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center this Friday, October 7th. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash in a moment, we'll hear about two outstanding new PBS documentaries airing on WABE-TV this month. Harriet Tubman, Visions of Freedom, and Becoming Frederick Douglass. Amplifying Atlanta, this is wabe This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Two giants of American history who radically changed the course of our nation for the better of humanity in their fight to end slavery are subjects of two new PBS documentaries. Harriet Tubman, Visions of Freedom, will air on WABE-TV tomorrow evening. And Becoming Frederick Douglass airs on October 11th and 13th. Joining me now via Zoom to talk more about the films is the director and producer, Stanley Nelson. Welcome to City Life.
2: Thank you so much.
1: With the many books written, scholarly research, films, and theater about Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, why did you want to make these two documentaries now about these well-known abolitionists?
2: Well, I, I think that that you know, there's there's always more to say about uh, these incredible Americans, but also you know, there's a lot of myth. Uh, about both Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, and there's uh, a lot that's not known about Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. I don't think that that there's kind of the definitive documentary that would make it so that that you know we would beg off and and, and not make those films. So I, I think they're just you know two amazing American stories, and um, we're very honored to be able to tell them.
1: Harriet Tubman was born. Araminta Ross, her mother nicknamed her Minty. Would you tell us about her life in Maryland and the environment in which she was raised?
2: Uh, yeah, Harriet Tubman, our, our uh, Minty Ross, was enslaved, you know, in, in Maryland. And, and her life, the beginning of her life as a young girl, would I guess you would say, would be somewhat typical of somebody that was enslaved. Um, you know, she did whatever work... They had her do around um, the house. She worked in the fields. She was enslaved, you know, she, and, and as an enslaved person, she had to do whatever jobs and take whatever abuse that was given out. One of the things I find I found that was really interesting about Harriet as a young girl is that she wanted to, you know, she preferred to work outside in the field. You know, we always think about the enslaved people that worked in the house, you know, the house Negroes, as they're called, um, you know, had a better life. But I think that, that one of the things that's happened in as we've gotten into new scholarship is that working in the house also meant that there was more chance for abuse. And and Harriet Tubman actually preferred to to work out in, in the fields. And
1: in so doing, she learned so much about how to navigate the outdoors itself. Her father was helpful in Helping acquaint her with the ways of the forest, how did his skills help form her trajectory?
2: Yeah, that's one of the things that that we talk about in, in the film. I, I think that you know Harriet Tubman worked out in the fields and in the woods, and and, and you know this was the the Eastern Shore of Maryland and in the in the water. Uh, so and, and her father also worked outside, and, and you know so she gained great skills in in navigating around in the you know nature, and 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 that was really important as she escaped enslavement and as she led other people out of enslavement that, you know, she knew how to how to navigate through the forest, through the swamps, um, through the land. And it was, uh, you know, something that, that I think is not really talked about a lot, but she had those skills and those skills allowed her to survive.
1: Indeed. She learned the constellations, how to navigate the night sky and the waters If we could step back just a moment to Maryland. I know you made these films initially for Maryland Public Television. Are you from Maryland yourself?
2: No, I'm not. I'm from New York City, although um, my father grew up in Washington, D.C., so very close to Maryland. And, uh, you know, I spent a good part of my life in the summers with my grandmother and grandfather in D.C.,
1: Maryland was complicated. I mean, I am sure it still is. But literally, free people of color lived very close to enslaved people. And that was Harriet Tubman's situation.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think that that for me entering into making these films, that was one of the most fascinating things about Maryland at that time. You know, Maryland was a state that, that was called the Upper South. So it's very different, you know, very different kind of enslavement from enslavement in Georgia or Alabama or or somewhere in in the deeper South. I think that that Maryland had uh, 90,000 enslaved African Americans, but it also had 60,000 free African Americans, and and they would work side by side. And and so a person like Harriet Tubman, that was enslaved in Maryland, would have known free people. So she would have known. Uh, what freedom was? She would have known what freedom looks like. In fact, uh, she actually married a free man. So, I, I you know, it, it's really interesting and fascinating and complicated, because even though Maryland was different, it was still enslavement, right? It was still the the fact that your body was owned by somebody else.
1: One thing brought out in the film that was articulated in a way I'd not encountered in reading about Harriet Tubman before that that made quite an impression on me in your film, is that she lived with a disability. That's how it's described. She endured this horrific injury brutally inflicted on her as a young girl trying to protect someone. And That resulted in seizures, visions. Would you talk about the title of the film and its multiple meanings or its layers of meaning?
2: Yeah, the the title of the film is Harry Tubman Visions of Freedom. You know, again, as you said, it's it's kind of a layered meaning. You know, when Harry Tubman was a young girl through a, a kind of a freak accident, uh, she was in a store and uh, another uh, enslaved a young man was being chased and the store owner picked up a, a heavy weight that was used for, you know, weighing flour or, or, or cornmeal or other things and and threw it at the guy and um, it missed him and, hit and struck Harry Tubman in the head. Um, and she was severely injured. She was concussed. But also after that, she for the rest of her life, she would have visions. And she felt that those were visions from a higher power. And the higher power, in many instances, she felt was instructing her in what to do, to go back down south after she had escaped from enslavement, but to go back, to go back to Maryland and free other people. And so visions of freedom.
1: Yes. She really saw herself as a vessel of God she believed. When did she acquire the nickname Moses?
2: We're not quite sure like who and when that was pinned on her. Definitely by the time of the Civil War, when she was kind of a scout for for the Union Army. And, and, you know, by that time, she had the nickname Moses. Someone credited it to uh, John Brown, who who called her Moses, but somewhere in, in her life she got the nickname Moses because she freed so many people.
1: Yeah. Would you
2: talk about the statistics?
1: It's staggering to learn the number of secret missions and the number of people she led to freedom.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the things about Harriet Tubman that's so fascinating is, you know, she was functionally illiterate. You know, she did not leave, you know, diaries and, and write articles. So before the Civil War, her uh, journeys back in, in, into the South to free people, you know, they were all clandestine. So she, we, we don't really know exactly, you know, how many people she freed, how many times she went. But we know, know that she went at least 13 times back to the South. And it's hard to to really understand for us today how dangerous that was, because she was an escaped slave. So if she was caught, she would have been thrown back into enslavement or killed or maimed. But at the very least, she would have been thrown back into enslavement. But she risked her life over and over again. But then during the civil war she became kind of an an agent for the Union army on one incredible raid that 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 she led that we talk about in the film she freed over 700 people in, in that one raid so she freed a lot of people
1: okay Gooseflesh does not begin to capture what I'm experiencing just listening to you say those numbers and I've read them and you bring it out in the film You mentioned the fact that she was never allowed to learn to read, part of the cruel deprivation of enslaved people. But your film also brings out what a marvelous storyteller she was. And there's very much a feminist angle to your film about Harriet Tubman because that Powerful storytelling endeared her to suffragettes.
2: Yeah, I mean, she was an incredible storyteller and. You know, one of the things about is Harriet Tubman is that she lived it. So, you know, when she told the story, it wasn't something that that she had read or, or something that, you know, was told her. Enslavement uh, was something that she lived. Escaping slave, slavery and the and the Underground Railroad, Railroad was something that she lived. Uh, being part of the abolitionist movement was something that she lived. But also, you know, after the Civil War, she became uh, part of the suffragette movement and, and spoke at, at conferences and other and other places as women fought to get equal rights and and, and the right to vote.
1: If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis, and my guest is director Stanley Nelson. We've been discussing his two new PBS documentaries, Becoming Frederick Douglass— And Harriet Tubman, Visions of Freedom. The film brings out that Harriet Tubman received acknowledgement, indebted recognition from Frederick Douglass himself. Would you talk about his thoughts of Harriet Tubman?
2: Yeah, Frederick Douglass wrote a, a really moving introduction to, I think it was a book about, about Harriet Tubman, you know, where he says something like, you know, I fought the battle, you know, through through words and through speeches, but you fought the battle um through action, through risking your life. It's just an incredible, incredible thing that that. Frederick Douglass writes, you know, I can't really do Frederick Douglass or quote Frederick Douglass uh, in, in the way that, that that he says it, but it, it's really moving because he, he actually kind of says, you know, you, you're you the real thing, you know, <laughs> Harriet, you're the real thing. I just talked about it and wrote about it, but you risked your life over and over again.
1: Well, he certainly endured the horror of slavery, but it, indeed his acknowledgement of the physical risks she took in her rescue missions was well-deserved and only fitting and proper. Doesn't mean that all people would have stated that recognition, and I think it is a testament to his character. Your film about Frederick Douglass opens with a reference to the 1841 abolitionists meeting. And the narration has Frederick Douglass stating, I'm a graduate of this institution called slavery. His eloquence just was naturally poetic. I know social scientists don't talk about, you know, poetry as something natural necessarily. But I think one of the things your film brings out so magnificently was how literacy became a gateway to knowledge for Frederick Douglass, and there's a part of your film that talks about how he traded biscuits, cookies, for words to learn more about reading. It's gorgeous.
2: Yeah, you know, Frederick Douglass is just such an amazing character. You know, he was born enslaved. He um, escaped slavery later on. But as a young boy, he was not taught to read and write. But he he knew that or he felt that knowledge and learning to read and write was his, his ticket to a different kind of life. And there was something different for him and, and for his people beyond enslavement. Um, As a young boy, he traded biscuits for knowledge for for, uh, some white kids who who lived close to him, and and they would teach him a little bit about reading and writing. You know, it was just uh, so important to him. But, you know, yeah, as you said, he just had this natural ability to write and to speak and to put the horrors of enslavement. In front of people in a way that they could understand it. As you started, he started the quote that, you know, he said that um, the horrors of slavery was written on my back. The diploma was written on my back. The whip marks from the beatings that he took as a young enslaved man. This talent, gift for metaphor, for
1: the poetic that you bring out in the film. Really drives home the importance of language and literacy, and how the deprivation of it was the psychological or emotional equivalent of the physical brutality.
2: Yeah, I, I think that that it's really important that that we understand and and that uh, you know we we related through the films that. Um, You know, it was not just physical, but enslavement also was a mental condition, you know, that, you know, you you weren't supposed to have any kind of knowledge of the outside world. You weren't supposed to understand that there was a difference between enslavement and, and freedom. And the life of Frederick Douglass really illustrates that.
1: So we're back in Maryland, in Baltimore. Would you talk about the importance of the AME Church for Frederick Douglass?
2: Yeah, I think the, you know, AME Church was, was hugely important. Again, you know, that that we had free African-Americans um, with enslaved African-Americans. So in some ways, the church was, was there, there were free people in the church. And, and one of the things we wanted to do was really talk a little bit about Frederick Douglass's uh, first wife, who was instrumental in his visions of freedom, and in, in, in instrumental in Frederick Douglass escaping to freedom, you know, he, she told him that, you know, you're not made to be a slave. You know, you're not. This is you're not made to be enslaved. That that there's another life. She was a free woman, and but she said, you know, we can we can escape this condition, and uh, she urged him to to head north.
1: His gift for poetic language and. The power of his delivery. You bring this out in the film. One scholar says in the 19th century, oratory was the equivalent of going to the movies. How was Frederick Douglass able to spread the word through his speaking appearances?
2: One of the things that that's discovered early on, you know, he's asked to speak in an abolitionist movement, as, as you mentioned, in Nantucket early on. And, and one of the things they realize that, that he's just an incredible speaker, you know, that his ex- direct experience with enslavement and his eloquence is just invaluable. So he becomes a speaker for abolitionists, and and again, as as you mentioned, going to hear people speak was like going to the movies. Obviously, there were no movies, there was no TV, but you could go, and you could hear speakers, you know, from from other parts of the world, from other parts of of the country, um, speaking about about issues, and Frederick Douglass became a highly sought-after and incredibly uh, well-traveled speaker, where he traveled all over the North, and finally to England, speaking about the horrors of enslavement. Emmy Award-winning director Stanley Nelson. In just
1: a moment, we'll return with more of our conversation about his two new PBS documentaries, Harriet Tubman, Visions of Freedom, and Becoming Frederick Douglass. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Let's return to my conversation with the Emmy Award-winning director Stanley Nelson. He has two new PBS documentaries airing on WABE-TV this month, Harriet Tubman, Visions of Freedom and Becoming Frederick Douglass. Here, Nelson discusses Douglass' creation of the North Star Weekly.
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, as Frederick Douglass progressed, as he became Frederick Douglass, he felt that the abolitionist movement in in some ways was limiting for him, you know, that they wanted to, to have him speak only about abolition. I think that you know when he went to uh England and, and Ireland and, and Scotland, he saw that, you know, there were there were world problems, you know, that, that and he wanted to speak about, you know, bigger things. You know, that that slavery was a scourge on, on this country, but that there were other problems, that that there were problems, you know, beyond just being free. So that African-Americans who, who were free in the North were not equal. You know, women were not equal and that there were other problems. So he, in, in some ways, you know, he broke slightly with the abolitionist movement and started his own paper so that he could talk about some of these things and write about some of these.
1: And he also was so far ahead of his time in understanding the importance of photography. How did he, he interpret the power of image in terms of representation.
2: And that's one of the fascinating things about, about Frederick Douglass, that, you know, this is, we're talking about, you know, 1850, you know, 1860, you know, you know, in the early stages of, of photography. Um, one of the things that Frederick Douglass realized was that that photography had its own power. He's said to be the most photographed man of any race of the 19th century. So there's a hundred photos of, of Frederick Douglass where, you know, he he goes into the studio and you know he's dressed beautifully and and um you know he's just staring at the camera and he's he's all it's almost like you know through his eyes he's daring you to say that that he belongs to be enslaved. You know, it's like no you know look at me. I don't belong don't belong to be enslaved, and neither do my people. And it's just an amazing use of photography because you know it's not written on the bottom of the photo; it's just through his gaze. And we really wanted to, to talk about that and to use these photos. And and you see it in in the film that you know he's challenging you to say, is enslavement right or is enslavement wrong? Just by his look.
1: Mm did you set out to make these films together
2: yeah we we knew from the very beginning when we were talking to maryland public tv that they wanted to do you know one one film on harriet tubman which had to be an hour and one film on frederick Douglass that had to be an <laughs> hour so um we knew uh, that we were doing both films at the same time and and that came with some benefits because you know they both lived at the same time but also you know for, as a filmmaker it was it was a little complicated because we didn't want to use the same photos and the same music, you know. but, But we knew from the very beginning that we were making both films.
1: I wondered that because there is such a beautiful connection that I wondered how or if intentional. Do you think that Harriet Tubman was the spiritual counterpart to Douglas's intellectual.
2: Yeah, that, that's a great, a great point. I, I feel like that in some ways, um, yes, <laughs> you, you put it beautifully. Well, thank um, you. Much.
1: You yeah. you, you brought it out, though. <laughs>
2: well, Yeah. I mean, you know, Frederick Douglass did what he did through speaking and writing and through speeches and, and intellect. Harriet Tubman was direct action. You know, she was going to go down south and, and, and free people. Um, one of the things that we wanted to bring out in Harry Tubman's story was that it was through her agency, through her intelligence, you know, through her a will that she went back down south again and again and again and did what she did. But, yeah, they were they were kind of opposites uh, of the same fight. You know, they're both fighting for equality, fighting for change in this country, fighting for abolition of, of this horrible institution that we called slavery but they did it in different ways. And I think that, you know, what what they did helped to end enslavement and then we needed it. We needed both ends to 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 work together. And that that was Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. If
1: anything brought home the power of how much remains to be done, I thought it was your focus on Frederick Douglass's address about the meaning of the 4th of July. Yeah.
2: That's one of the greatest speeches, I think, you know, in the history of this country, certainly, I think that, you know, it's so forward-looking. And uh, Wendell Pierce, who who reads uh, as Frederick Douglass in the film, does such a great job of, of delivering the speech. And it's so, it's a speech where, you know, as he's reading it in the film, you think that that probably... There's few people who would have the bravery or the eloquence to give that speech today. But it's just as true today as it was when Frederick Douglass gave it. It's just an incredible speech.
1: And it reminded me, was it only last year when President Biden made Juneteenth a federal holiday?
2: Yeah, I, I I think this year was the first year that it was actually a holiday. Emmy Award-winning director Stanley Nelson,
1: his two new PBS documentaries, Harriet Tubman, Visions of Freedom, and Becoming Frederick Douglass are airing on WABE-TV. More information about airtimes is available on our website wabe.org citylights city lights. Atlanta's Latin art exhibition, Nuestra Creacion, has returned to the Mint Gallery during Hispanic Latin Heritage Month. Twenty three emerging local Latin artists are showcasing their works through October 15th. In 2019, the exhibition was created by Salvadoran artist Patricia Hernandez as a way to amplify the voices of Latin artists. The money raised at the gallery will go towards El Refugio, an organization that works with detainees and their loved ones, at Stewart Detention Center. More information is at mintatl.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the Atlanta Celebrates Photography Festival which runs through the end of October at various locations throughout the city. Plus, the creators of the Southern Surf Stomp Fest tell us about their upcoming festival and the history of that musical genre. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with the legendary Smokey Robinson, You can catch up via our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS, R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta.